say this lightly. I read a lot of books, and one of the books that uh, has shaped my life in one of the most profound ways um, has altered essentially my wife and I, our entire, like what our family looks like, uh, is a book that Russell Moore wrote um, years ago called Adopted for Life. And uh, in this book, uh, Russell Moore, uh, he talks about, uh, he sort of walks through the journey it's half memoir, half theology book about uh, the story of him adopting his two sons from Russia and a theology of adoption, of this doctrine of the fatherhood of God. And in the opening chapters, he tells the story of when he adopted his two boys. And they had just come home from Russia, and he says he's out walking in public uh, in their home in Kentucky at the time. And he said a woman comes up to them at the store and says looks at the two boys who were just a few weeks apart in age and she looks at uh, the boys and she looks at the parents and says, so are they brothers? And he says, "Uh, yes, of course they're brothers. They're my sons. She says, you adopted them, right? And he said, yes. She says, so are are they brothers? He says, yes, absolutely they're brothers. They're my sons. Therefore, they're my brothers. And she looks at him and she says, yeah, 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 I know they are brothers now, but are they really brothers? She said. And he says in his book, he says, I clenched my jaw, he said, and I tried to loosen my fists. And he said, yes, they are both now our children. And so, yes, they are really brothers. And what she, and he said, the woman rolled her eyes and she said, Ugh, you know what I mean, before she walked off. And what she wanted to know was these boys, they were from Russia. She knew that they were adopted. They were a few weeks apart. She wanted to know, do these boys share a common biological ancestry? Do they share the same bloodline? Do they share the same DNA? Are they really brothers? She wanted to know. Are they real brothers or are they just adopted brothers? She wanted to ask. And what is implied within that question is this subtext of, that families by adoption are somehow less of families than families through biological means. And Dr. Moore says that for that, he said that same idea uh, sort of pervaded other questions that they would ask about his family. They would say, so he adopted his boys first and, they would, and people would come up to him and they would say, so do you ever want to have children of your own? And he said that would frustrate him. He'd say, but yes, I do plan on having more children of my own because I'd love the two of my own that I currently have. See, the assumption is that somehow an adopted child is less of a child. And that the most important trait of what makes a family is a common bloodline. And as we have been studying the book of Galatians, perhaps you've realized that in some ways this is precisely the question that was being asked in churches throughout the first century at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. What makes a real child of God? Who's really a child of God? See, the belief being touted during that time was that God loved all people, yes, God loves everyone, but those who obeyed the Jewish law, particularly those who were circumcised, those were his real children. 
And so these Judaizers that we've talked about who've come into Galatia, Paul has preached the gospel to them. Jesus plus nothing else equals your salvation in Christ. And he leaves Galatia after he's preached that gospel. And these Judaizers, these false teachers come in and they say, yes, Jesus is your way to salvation. Absolutely. But if you really want to be a real child of God, a real offspring of Abraham, if you really want to be considered our brothers, if you really want to be considered one of us, you've got to be circumcised. Because if you really want to be a real child of God, you've got to be this type of person. And so with this in view, Paul writes these words, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. Or starting in verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir of God. See, for Paul, I mean, the book of Galatians is essentially Paul saying, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. And the best, the most airtight metaphor or illustration that Paul can come up with for what the gospel looks like is this analogy of adoption. And he says the greatest earthly illustration of our salvation in Christ is that of adoption. And he says the greatest spiritual reality that we can ever learn is that God is our Father. The great Anglican theologian uh, J.I. Packer, who's 90 years old and still kicking it. He's awesome. Um, He says in his book, Knowing God, which I highly recommend, he says that this is the essence of what Christianity is, to be adopted by God. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. And listen to what he says. If you want to judge how well one understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls worship and prayers and his whole outlook outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught and everything that makes the New Testament new, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. This is J.I. Packer. And my wife and I, um, we're coming up on eight years of marriage in February. And when we got married, um, we began to pray that our marriage would be a reflection of God's graciousness in our lives. And so what we said is we want our lives to reflect the goodness of God to the world around us. We don't want to just be married for ourselves and for our own little family unit, but we want to be married for the good of the world and for the glory of God. So we want our lives, our marriage, to demonstrate uh, the good news of Jesus um, for the 50, 60 years that we have together. 
And we said we wanted our marriage to be and our lives to be a living example of what God has done for us. And so when we began to talk about how we would begin our family, this idea of adoption kept coming up years ago. How are we going to start our family? And this idea of adoption kept coming up. And it first came into our minds as a way of putting, our, putting to action our convictions on life. Uh, my wife and I are both unashamedly pro-life in our convictions. Uh, but we never wanted to simply be anti-abortion. That's not what we wanted to be. We don't want to be known by what we're against. We want to be known by what we're for. And so we, we said we want to be known by what we're for, not by what we're against. We want to be a part of the solution, not just somebody shouting about a problem. Um, so we pursued this idea of adoption. Um, but more than just this, the book of James says that religion at its purest is caring for the orphans. This is what the scriptures say is the purest form of religion is caring for the orphans. And so my wife and I, we felt like God was leading us um, to start our family through adoption. And God doesn't call everyone to that. We understand that. But that was what we felt at the time. And in the end, um, however, it was our theology, an understanding of the doctrine of adoption that actually motivated us to adopt our son. Um, But as we have traveled this journey, our earthly adoption of our son has actually informed our theology in deep and profound ways. As we've adopted our son, our son has been able, and the process of adoption has taught us more about God than we ever could have learned through books and Bible studies. I mean, we experienced it in real life. And through the adoption of our son, we've learned so many things about God. We've learned in a deeper, more profound way what it means to be adopted by our Heavenly Father. And I agree with J.I. Packer that if we want to understand what it means to be a Christian, we must gain an understanding of what it means to be adopted children of God. And to be a child of God, what does that mean? What does it mean to be adopted? The first thing it means is this. It means that you are no longer an orphan. He says in verse 3, Paul says, So also, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What does that mean? We were held in bondage. We were born to the elemental things of the world. It means, and if you read the rest of Paul's letters, you know that he says this over and over again. It means that we were born as slaves to sin. See, the scriptures tell us that we were born spiritually dead. We were born spiritually fatherless. Romans 5.12 says that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, what does that mean? That's kind of a tricky verse. Paul says, and the testimony of the New Testament affirms this, that sin entered the world through one man named Adam, the first created human, and it spread to all of us. And Paul says that the way we understand sin Often in evangelical churches, people say that sin is something we do. Sin means missing the mark. And that's partly true. It is true. Sin is something, sins are things we commit, but sin is also something that we inherited. We are born sinners. So to clarify, we do not, we do not, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This is what Paul says. We are born with a, we're not born with a propensity to sin. We are born as sinners. And the scriptures teach that from the moment that Adam disobeyed God, when he, when he disobeyed the commands of God, something was actually fractured in our spiritual DNA, so to speak. And so all of us, as ancestors of Adam, we are now born with this spiritual DNA imprint within us. And Paul essentially says that there has been a transmission of death from Adam all the way to us. We are born, it is in our nature that we are sinners. And that death is what is 
is going to happen to all of us in this world. That means that we're not born with the propensity to sin. We're born as sinners. And so here's what, uh, one way to like bring this down. Did any of you remember in biology class when you were a kid the like DNA trait boxes? Maybe they changed this. Like Common Core is changing everything. And so I don't even know how I'm going to help my kids with their homework. But do, is this still a thing? The four boxes where you take like the dominant gene and the recessive gene. And so you can decide if you're going to have like what kind of earlobes you're going to have or what color of hair you're going to have or what kind of freckles you're going to have or whatever by saying, okay, you know, black hair is a dominant gene. Red hair is a recessive gene. So you put the capital B black, the lowercase r, and then you cross-reference it through the boxes. And you can actually determine what percentage it is that your kids will have red hair or whatever. Whatever. Paul essentially says that sin is the dominant gene. And there is a capital S in every single one of our biological framework that says you are born into sin because your father, your ancestor, Adam, brought it into this world. And so when you hear that, it seems like there's no hope. Um, I mean, if the penalty of death is sin, which Paul says it is in Romans 6.23, then we're considered dead. So what hope do we have? And what it means to be born spiritually fatherless means that we're born without hope. We cannot save ourselves. And when I think about, um, just to bring it into an earthly picture of what orphans look like in today's world, I think of orphans all over the world today who are born without hope. Either their parents have died or they were abandoned. They have no family. They have no provision, no support. They're left with no hope. That's what it means to be an orphan. There's nothing that they can do for themselves to relieve their situation. An orphan can't do anything to relieve their situation. And the statistics are incredibly sobering. If you look at UNICEF or the United Nations, their statistics, it says that there are somewhere around, depending on who you ask, 146 million orphans worldwide. 143 million of them spend at least 10 years of their lives in an orphanage or in a foster home. Each year, over 14 million orphans, quote, age out of the system, which means that they turn 18 and they're no longer considered adoptable and they go out into the world on their own with no possessions, no resources, no inheritance, nothing. And the statistics of what happens to people who age out of that system are heartbreaking. 10 to 15 percent of orphans worldwide who age out of the system will commit suicide before their 18th birthday, 10 to 15 percent. 60% of the girls, of orphan girls worldwide, will end up in prostitution. And 70% of the boys will end up as hardened criminals in prison. And the only thing that can give an orphan like that, we have a global orphan crisis. The only thing that can give an orphan hope in the midst of that trajectory is if someone reaches out, accepts them, and brings them into their home and gives them hope, brings them into a family with a future. See, we are the same way, spiritually speaking. We are spiritual orphans. We cannot do anything to atone for our sins. We are born bearing the marks of Adam, a disobedient father, who essentially abandoned us by abandoning God. And our only hope in this life, spiritually speaking, is for a new father to reach down into our situation and adopt us into a different family that doesn't necessarily have our DNA of sin coursing through its veins. And we have that hope because of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And here's the best part. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, we are born without sin. We are born without hope. But through Jesus, 
The price He paid on the cross, we can be adopted as sons, which means we now have hope that our identity has changed and we are given a new name. This is what I want you to see, the second thing I want you to see. You're given a new name. When you're adopted, when you become a Christian, you are, in essence, adopted by God as your Father. And you are given a new name. It says, verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and we cry, Abba, Father. See, all throughout the, the Bible is the testimony of God taking people who were once one thing and then making, he makes them another thing. So the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter of Galatians, he's writing this letter as a man who 15 to 20 years earlier was murdering Christians for preaching the gospel. I mean, he's writing, he's writing as a man who once murdered people precisely for their faith, and now he's a missionary. God has a way of taking people who are once one thing and making them another. He once crucified people, persecuted people for preaching the Messiah, and now he is preaching the Messiah. It's incredible. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And if you read through the Bible, one of the things you notice is that when God radically transforms somebody, he often changes their name. So Abraham, Abram, when he trusted in faith of God's promise, God changed his name to Abraham. Jacob, when he believed in the promise, God changed his name to Israel, whom my son is named after. Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah. Peter, his, cha- his name was changed to Cephas, which means the rock. Like God was, Jesus was like, Peter, I'm going to change your name, and your name is now going to be the rock. How cool is that? That's awesome. I want Jesus to give me that nickname, Pastor the Rock. That would be awesome. And the Apostle Paul, his name was not Paul originally, it was Saul. And when God reached down and saved Paul, he said, I'm going to change, or saved Saul, he said, I'm going to change your name, I'm going to give you a new identity. You are no longer Saul, you are Paul, you have a new identity. And all of these men and women, they were once one person, but then God changed them into a new person and he gave them a new identity, he gave them a new name. And the same thing is true with us if we've been adopted by God, if we are Christians and we've begun following Jesus. Our name, before being adopted, was enemy. We were enemies of God. We were rebels, sinners, sons of Adam. We were born with these names, but when God reaches down and adopts us into his family, our our name is changed from enemy to friend, from sinner to saint, and from Adam to Jesus. And there's, I want to read you guys a letter from a friend of mine who explains this so much better than I ever could. Um, This is from my friend Courtney. She wrote this. This is a blog post she wrote 10 years ago, and I've saved it. Um, But I want you guys to hear this. My mom turned 41 last week. I'm 23. What this means is that my mom gave birth to me when she was 17 and in high school. She wasn't married, and as a matter of fact, when her long-term boyfriend found out she was pregnant, he deserted her altogether. It was hard for him, too. He was a 17-year-old kid, and he had a pretty tough home. But when I was born, my mom gave me his last name, hoping that would make him stick around and want me. But it didn't work. But all of my baby things, my blankets, my little cross-stitched pictures, etc., they all just say Courtney Lynn, and there's no last name. I think everyone around my mom and I were confident that I would not keep the last name I was given at birth. On your birth certificate, there's a section that reads, Father present at birth, and then there is a blank. Seeing as my father was nowhere to be found... On the day of my birth, that section of my birth certificate was left blank. And I can't help but think of how we are all born into sin. To a father who abandoned us long before we were born. 
He abandoned us when he ate the apple, and even though we were given his name at birth, we only bore it with the hope that it would one day change. She says, life without a dad was really tough. My mom and I struggled just to live. I'm talking poor, welfare poor. But when I was four years old, my mom met and married the man that I now call dad. And not only did he marry my mom, but he adopted me, which meant that his last name became my last name. And I no longer had to bear the name of the man who ate the apple and left me hungry. Instead, I was given the name of a man who chose me and wanted me, tainted past and all. And what's more amazing is that upon my adoption, my birth certificate was rewritten. Long after my actual physical birth, a new law was written. One that said my father, who chose me at four years old, was actually present in the hospital room on the day that I entered this world. She says, my birth certificate now reads, Father present at birth, William Hurst. Do you see it? She says. I lived for years apart from my father. I had a long history by the time he even met me, but he chose me. And that decision not only changed my future, but it changed my past. I was given an identity. I was no longer illegitimate. I was no longer a bastard child. With the adoption fees, I was purchased out of my own sinful past. He paid to give me his name and to give me his history. And then she quotes the scriptures. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And then she says, our father has purchased us with the greatest price. He knew that our last name would not be Adam forever. He chose us before the foundations of the earth. And although our history was one of sin, when he adopted us with the price of his son, not only did our future change, but our history did as well. He became the father who was present at our birth. We are no longer sons and daughters of Adam, but of our father God who in his great mercy has given us new birth. Amen. Listen, if you're a Christian, the moment that you received the forgiveness of Christ, God the judge dropped his gavel and declared you righteous. And he changed your name from enemy to son, from sinner to saint, from Adam to Jesus. And in that moment, not only were you given a new name and a new identity, you are given all the privileges of what it means to be a child of God. You were given, this is the third thing I want you to see, you were given an inheritance. It says in verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Now what does it mean to be an heir? To be an heir means that everything that is your father's is now yours. Everything that is God's is now ours. I remember when Rebecca and I went to adopt our son, we adopted him from Ethiopia. And our first trip, we went and visited, we went to court. And then the second trip, we brought him home. But our first trip, we got a tour of the orphanage. And I remember walking through that orphanage. And one of the things that just sticks out to you is that every single one of these kids in these orphanages, they are absolutely possessionless. They leave the orphanage when they're adopted in clothes that their adoptive parents brought with them. 
They share their beds. They share their toys. They share their clothes. They share their food. They share everything. They have nothing. And I can't help but think about the beauty of what happens the moment that these kids are declared adopted. In an instant, an orphan goes from literally having nothing to having a home, to having a bed, perhaps even their own bedroom, to having a collection of toys, to having a pantry full of food. But more importantly, perhaps, their name is put on a life insurance policy. Their name is put in the will of their parents. And in an instant, they go from orphans to heirs. From orphans to having an inheritance. Everything that is owned by their parents is now theirs for the taking. And the same is us, true with us if we are children of God. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 1, this is the third time we've said this today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. But don't we sometimes forget this? We're children of God. Everything that's His is ours. The kingdom is yours, God says. Everything that is mine is now yours. But we have, this, we have this incredible inheritance ahead of us, the kingdom of God ahead of us. But we often look behind us, don't we? We look behind to the things we left behind. And we don't lay hold of what has been given to us. Um, this is not an uncommon story, but as my wife and I have had the privilege of going through an adoption, we've met several adoptive families. And this is not an uncommon occurrence. This happens a lot. But one of our friends... Uh, adopted two boys years ago. And they said that when they went to go pick up their boys, they woke up that morning just excited. Just so excited that they were, their family was, a family of two was about to become a family of four. And they woke up that, excited that morning to go get their boys and bring them home. And they said as they traveled to the orphanage, they were thinking in their mind what it was going to be like. And they had this idea in their mind that when they walk into the orphanage, that boy, those little boys are going to see their parents. They recognize them through pictures, pictures, and their boys are just going to run into their arms and smile and laugh and cry tears of joy. And they're going to become this beautiful, happy family. And they're going to walk out of the orphanage. They're going to get on a plane and they're going to fly home to America. And life is just going to be beautiful. But they said when they walked in, they walked into the room and their boys were scared. Their boys kept their backs against the wall as they slowly inched their way to their new parents. They didn't hug them. They just kind of brushed up against them. They were scared. And they hesitantly gave attention to their parents. And my friend says that when they got into the van to leave the orphanage, they said they're leaving. He said, and as they're leaving, I'm telling my kids about everything that's at home in America. McDonald's. Playgrounds, you know, all these fun things, cars and trains and everything, toys. He said, but as I'm telling my boys that, their faces were pressed up against the back window of the van, longing to go back to the orphanage that they were leaving. And he said, for months, they didn't want to leave. It's all they knew. And he said, for months when they were home, his boys would hoard food. They would hoard possessions. They would constantly talk about going back to the orphanage. Because they weren't yet fully convinced of their inheritance yet. 
and they weren't yet fully convinced that their new parents were good. See, they were prone to looking back to their old life because they weren't fully convinced of their new one yet. Listen, church, we've been given a new life in Christ, but we continually retreat back to the old one. When we fall into old sin patterns, when we don't trust God with the way he's laid out our life before us, we continue to live in fear and we continue to go back to our old ways, not trusting that the way that God has for us is good. But listen, Crossroads, when you are made a son, you are given everything that is the father's. You are given full rights as a son. And just as a side note, because some of you may be thinking it, when Paul uses the word son, he's not being misogynistic. He's not being chauvinistic. He's not just thinking only about males. He, remember in verse 28, he says there's neither male nor female. He says we are all sons. And what he's actually saying is incredibly subversive in his day. He's saying that women who at the time were viewed as inferior to men, vastly inferior to men at the time, he's saying that you now before God have the right to be declared a son of God and receive the inheritance that is due a son. See, in that day, only sons received the inheritance. But Paul is saying everyone, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile, all of us are equal sons of God. Are you really a child of God? Yes. Are you, are you really our brother? Yes. Because I've been adopted by the same father. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew or Gentile. We are all equally sons in the eyes of God. Which means we are given a full inheritance of what the Father has for us. Everything that the Father has is now ours. Now, the thing about adoption that we must not forget is that it comes at a great cost. You see, in order for you to be adopted by a holy God, your sin had to be taken care of. And it was taken care of by Jesus who lived the life that you could never live. He was born under the impossible standard of the law, which you and I all failed. Yet he lived perfectly. And he died the death that we should have died so that we did not have to die. And so that we could receive the life that he lived. And just like you feel about your children... That there's nothing, there is, if you're a parent here, you know that there's nothing your child could do that could make you love them less. You love them. If you're a child of God, there is nothing you can do that can make him love you any less than he loves you right now. And there is nothing you could do that can make him love you any more than he loves you right now because he loves you with an infinite love. So we live as sons confident that we are accepted, loved, and known by God and that we have been given an inheritance and a name and a future in him. And all of that is costly because it cost him his life. For God to adopt us, it cost him his life. It cost him his comfort. It cost him everything. But he did it because of his great love for us. People often ask me, people that are considering adoption, they say, how much is adoption? How much does it cost? How much does an international adoption cost? And I usually deflect it and say, how much does your car cost? It's probably about the same. You could sell your car, drive a $1,000 junker. You could do it. That's what I say. Um, I would encourage you all to consider it. But people want to know how expensive is, being, is adopting a child. How costly is it? And the reality is it's very expensive. It's expensive financially. It's expensive emotionally. And it's not over when you bring the child home because you're bringing a child who has years of habits and hurts within them that you're bringing that into your home. Adopting a child is painful and it is hard. But it pales in comparison to what it costs God to adopt us. He gave His Son 
as the adoption fees for us to be called children of God. See, for God to adopt his children, it cost him everything. But don't you worry. He was happy to do it. The scriptures say that for it is our father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's the truth of the gospel. That it is his good pleasure to give us his son so that we could have eternal life. Psalm 68.5, it says that God is a father to the fatherless. And so let us embrace God as our father. And if you, this is just a side note. If you, like me, grew up with a father who loved you and who cared for me well, um, it's not difficult for me to attribute God this attribute of being my father because I know what a good father looks like. But for others of you, you may have grown up without a father or an abusive father or a neglectful father. But I want you to know that the best news of Christianity is that you no longer have to be fatherless. That you have a father who is willing to give his own life so that you could be his child. And that may seem distant and spiritual and not tangible enough to you. But trust that in heaven, in the future, in the kingdom that is coming, you will experience what it means to have a perfect father. And all the pain that your father has caused you here and now will be erased under the beautiful, perfect love of God the Father in eternity. Believe that with us this morning. Believe that with me this morning. Let's pray.